Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Businesses all over the world are in danger of going bankrupt due to the chaos wreaked by COVID-19. What can be done to save them? Hello and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog and also coming up on today's show, should the Fed turn to negative interest rates? I think what the Fed and what Chairman Powell are probably thinking is that the risk-reward trade-off is simply not that favourable. And is this the time for creative destruction and entrepreneurial true grit? Since 1970, at least 80% of companies have been born in booms rather than busts. First, the pandemic and its resulting lockdown has brought business crashing to a halt. For many, this spells trouble. This week, JCPenney, an American department store, filed for bankruptcy, following other high street retailers like Neiman Marcus and J. Crew. Other large firms, including Hertz, the car hire company, and Chesapeake Energy, a pioneer of America's shale industry, are on the brink of collapse. Governments have stepped in to help, but will that be enough to ensure that businesses survive? Vijay Vaitisvaran is The Economist's US business editor, currently in New York. Hello, Vijay. Hello there. And Wendelin von Bredau is our European business and finance correspondent based in Berlin. Welcome, Wendelin. Hello, lovely to join you. Vijay, let's start with you. We've seen some of these big household names file for bankruptcy and more could follow. What does this say about the health of business in America? These were firms that were already having difficulties. There were structural problems in their industry or at the company. The real worry is that there are millions more firms in America, including small and medium firms, and certainly some big ones, that uh, are going to be put out of business because of the COVID-19 crisis, because of the extended uh, periods of uh, lockdowns and, and lack of consumer activity. And so uh, companies that had good managements, relatively low levels of debt, and had viable businesses that just didn't have enough cash in the bank, so to speak, or enough runway to last three, six, nine months worth of uh, declining business. I think that's the real concern that viable businesses will go bankrupt in record numbers. And that's the current indication and warning. And Wendelin, are there similar concerns in Europe? Yes, absolutely. There are similar concerns about companies going bust. Peter Altmaier, Germany's economy minister, promised that no healthy company should go bankrupt because of Corona, when he announced credit lines and liquidity guarantees and grants for German businesses on an unprecedented scale to the tune of 750 billion euros. So Germany, like many other European countries, are trying to, to rescue or to build a safety net to avoid healthy companies going bankrupt. But of course, that's very expensive and it's uncertain for how long they can keep going. So a lot depends on, you know, whether this is over 
soon or you know the the economies can really restart or or whether we are in it for a longer term and could you say a bit about differences from country to country within Europe? I know that Germany's been very generous with its schemes for businesses. Does that vary in other countries? Yes, Germany, of course, has the fiscal room for manoeuvre to be generous with its companies, and they are using that firepower because its fiscal health is sound. Other countries, Greece, for instance, and Italy, just don't really have such a war chest, you know, which they can deploy now. And Vijay, what warning signs are there that suggest there might be a spate of bankruptcies on the way? Right. So if we just look at the number of big bankruptcies already on track to approach the previous peak we saw during the post-Lehman crash 10 years ago. But that's really undercounting. People who follow this very closely, academics and the credit rating agencies, for example, they look at indicators like junk bonds, uh, that is uh, so-called speculative credit, uh, that's not investment grade. And they look and see what is the spread between what's offered by the market for those bonds versus, say, the U.S. Treasury, the benchmark. And these distressed bonds, or the distress ratio, as it's called in, in the lingo, has grown dramatically. And so we've seen early warning signs that we're going to get a lot more junk bond defaults. Uh, we've already seen 32 worldwide junk bond defaults in April. That was a level not seen since a decade ago, most of them in America. And Standard & Poor's, one of the credit rating agencies, estimates that this is going to increase dramatically in the course of this year. And depending on one's assumptions of if this crisis is going to be about as bad as the post-Lehman crash or much, much worse, and I think uh, certainly the economist in-house view is that it will be much worse, we could see much greater number of bankruptcies than we saw 10 years ago. You say the scale of the shock could be much worse than the 2007-2009 crisis. What are the other differences in terms of government support in America? As Wendelin pointed out on the European side of the Atlantic, there are policies that are uh, from the government that are unprecedented to support business. Uh, there's something called the Paycheck Protection Program. The federal government has passed uh, several stimulus packages. And there's another one being contemplated right now with some wrangling between Democrats and Republicans for more money for the economy. The problem is big companies have generally been able to tap into that. The smaller firms, the mom and pop uh, on the street corner or the, the small chain or small restaurant chain, they have found it harder to get access to that money, in part because they, lack, they may lack financial sophistication or know exactly how to apply for it. Whereas the branded chains like Shake Shack and some of the other big ones actually were able to get money and then were so humiliated by public scorn that they returned the money. And so we're seeing some of that, that the money's not necessarily getting to where it needs to go. The Federal Reserve also, it must be said, in unprecedented action, has made its resources available to the corporate sector, including the unprecedented availability of its resources for corporate bonds to prop up the market, which has had a positive implication on the stock markets. It's buoyed the Standard and & Poor and Dow Jones indices. And Wendelin, what's the view in Europe? How do you think what we're seeing now compares with the financial crisis? Well, I interviewed the chief economist of Ola Hermes. It's a um, credit insurer based in Paris, although owned by Germany's Allianz. And he is forecasting a rise of 19% of bankruptcies this year compared with last year. And that's less than what happened in 2008, uh, when the increase was 32%, so actually considerably less. And he explained to me that the corporate carnage was so brutal in 2008 because of the credit crunch. 
you know, suddenly there were just no loans available anymore for many firms, and that sealed their fate at the time. And this time, EU governments are pumping an unprecedented amount of liquidity into their economies, and therefore Mr. Subron hopes that the the rate of bankruptcies this time will be will rise, of course, but but the rise will not be as high as in 2008. You know, Rashad, uh, Wendelin puts her finger on, I think, the, the central point here with this discussion, and that is uh, the difference between last time and this time, between 10 years ago and now, is not a lack of money. The world is awash in capital. The government capital that we just talked about, the stimulus money and so on, but also in terms of private sector, the banks are robust and healthy this time. In fact, the banks and other financial institutions were the cause of the problem 10 years ago, and there was a credit crunch. This time, it's the opposite. We actually have a multiplicity of lenders to companies, that is private non-banks, for example, uh, with lots of money. We have more new capital being raised by entities like uh, they're called distress funds or vulture funds, if you want to call them that, that are trying to bring money specifically to companies that have good business models, but that are caught in a cash crunch. So we have the opposite of last time in a way in that we have plenty of money, but there's no demand because everyone is indoors and not buying anything. Just to exaggerate a little bit, the problem is actually the viability of the business on the high street, not so much the availability of credit. That's really interesting. Does that mean that fewer companies then will go to the wall? Instead, they'll take advantage of the various other alternatives there are to declaring bankruptcy, Vijay? I think that will eventually happen. But at the moment, we're caught in a moment of one of the bankruptcy lawyers I talked to called it the eye of the hurricane. It's a a calm now. Lenders are not yet ready to give money for the following reason. One uh, restructuring specialist said, look, it's very hard to value a company that doesn't have clear cash flow or visibility on its future markets. Another expert argued that, look, lenders don't know whether to restructure out of court or grant forbearance or insist on bankruptcy when you have no idea if a firm will make money again. That uncertainty is putting uh, you know, a little bit of a, a damper on the enthusiasm of the lenders. And the sellers, the companies that are in distress, who's maybe only able to get 50 cents on the dollar for their company, say, hey, wait a minute, if I wait a few months, maybe they'll find a vaccine or, you know, uh, some other sort of magic solution. And I can get 80 or 90 cents on the dollar for my company. Why should I, you know, give up control now? Or why should I accept the bailout from a, a creditor? And so for that reason, we're in a bit of a stasis at the moment where companies are in trouble, but they're not yet ready to take help. Uh, But I believe that dam will break in the next few months, unfortunately. And there may be, if we're lucky, lots of workouts, as they're called, and restructuring. If we're unlucky, it may just have to be companies going bust forever. Vijay Vaitisvaran, Wendelin von Bredau, thank you. Lots of fun. Thank you. Thank you. And it's not just governments that are trying to ease the economic pain caused by the pandemic. Central banks around the world are trying to keep companies and households borrowing costs down. Many have cut interest rates and have unleashed huge bond-buying programmes. But what more can they do? Some economists are calling for the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates into negative territory, as central banks in Europe and Japan have already done. Negative interest rates mean that savers, instead of earning a return on the money they keep with the bank, end up having to actually pay for the privilege to store their money in a bank account. Ryan Avent is our free exchange columnist. And in the same way, people who've borrowed from the bank, rather than accruing interest that they have to pay back, end up having to pay the bank less than they initially borrowed. So it sort of flips the world on its head a little bit. And so tell us why some central banks are considering negative rates. Well, because of the profound economic 
shock of COVID-19 and also the fact that the world has been for the last decade or so in this low rate environment, central banks and their efforts to kind of boost the economy slashed their main policy rates all the way to zero and still found themselves needing to do more to try to support demand, support spending. And so there's been a number of different strategies that central banks have used. They print money and buy things like bonds in hopes that will kind of perk up the economy. They've instituted a lot of different programs to try to support lending. But I think what a lot of them would like to do is to be able to continue with the rate cutting process and, if possible, move rates into negative territory to try to continue to add to economic stimulus. And of course, some central banks have already cut rates into negative territory, in fact, before the pandemic. So tell us which parts of the world already have negative interest rates. Right. So the European Central Bank initially experimented with negative rates and has had negative rates in place since 2014. Their main policy rate now is negative 0.5%. The Bank of Japan also has negative rates. So does the Swiss National Bank. And the central banks adopted those negative rates at a time when there was a serious concern about deflationary pressures, about falling prices, about the need to boost economic activity. And there was kind of a a grasping at whatever policy tools might provide them some leverage in the economy. And so far, those rate reductions have worked more or less as intended. So why now are we seeing a discussion about negative interest rates, both in Britain and in America? There are really a couple of things that are pushing this onto the agenda in both Britain and in the United States. One, of course, is the dire economic situation that countries find themselves in. I think the other thing is that markets appear to be betting that this is going to happen. If you look at prices in futures markets, it suggests that traders think central banks will end up, that the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve will end up cutting rates into negative territory. Now, Jerome Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, has said that this is really not something that the Fed feels is appropriate for the United States. But nonetheless, given this pressure from both markets and from broader economic data. I think it's something that is now being discussed with much more interest in Washington and in London. You talked about some of the benefits of cutting interest rates into negative territory. What are the problems with the approach? The initial concern with efforts to push rates into negative territory was that it would lead to people pulling their money out of the banking system. You know, if you're holding cash, if you have bills in your hand, those bills essentially pay an interest rate of zero. And so if your bank account is paying negative 0.5%, there's an incentive there to just take your money out into cash and shove it in your mattress. I think what central banks have discovered over the past few years is that actually this doesn't happen all at once right at zero. And there are good reasons for that. If you take your money out, put it in a mattress, it could get stolen. It's harder to spend in various ways. If you're very rich and you have lots of money that you're trying to store, it costs money to store it elsewhere. And so actually you don't uh, find that money just floods out of the banking system as soon as you go into negative territory. And that's why both Europe and Japan are able to sustain negative rates. And what other problems can negative rates cause? One relates to bank profitability. As rates go into negative territory, what banks are able to earn from the various activities is squeezed a bit. The money that they are required to store at the central bank faces a negative interest rate, and so that drains money out of the bank. But they're not as able to extend those interest rates to depositors, and so What you find is that the margins they earn are squeezed and there's a concern that as banks face the potential for losses in this way, that they'll curtail lending, that actually efforts to boost the economy and and lead to more lending may end up having the opposite effect at at some point. And so there's a, a reluctance to push rates too far into negative territory for that reason. And as you said, Mr. Powell has denied that he's thinking about cutting rates below zero in America. 
Does that mean he thinks that the costs of going negative outweigh the benefits? I think what the Fed and what Chairman Powell are probably thinking is that the risk-reward trade-off is simply not that favorable. That the additional economic bang you get for moving rates from, say, 0.25% to negative 0.25 or negative 0.5%, it's not worth the additional risks that you sort of put onto the financial system. Now, there are additional steps that you could probably take as a government to try to enable rates to go more negative. So you could get rid of large denomination bills, for instance. You could make it easier for households and firms to get direct access to negative rates from the Federal Reserve and not have to go through the banking system. But those all imply major changes to the financial system, which you might not want to undertake at a time of crisis. They also require, in many cases, legislation from government. And I think at a moment when central banks are worried about their independence, they don't particularly want to have legislatures involving themselves in central bank business. So I just think that from the perspective, at least of the Fed, this is not a tool that's that's going to deliver in the way that a lot of supporters of negative rates hope that it would. That's really interesting. So without big changes to banking and financial regulation, if you like, rates just can't go that negative. So it sounds like negative rates just can't be a solution to the economic problems that the pandemic has brought. What other solutions do you think central banks could be turning to instead? Well, I think the sort of difficult truth that a lot of economies are facing is that central banks really are kind of butting up against their limits in terms of how much more they can do to help the economy. They're already buying massive amounts of bonds. They're doing quite a lot to support lending across the economy. But really, given the tools they have now, they're I think they're unfortunately a bit limited. Now, the one thing I would say is that if we think that looking forward into the future, that we're going to be in this world of very low rates, very low inflation, kind of weak growth for years to come, then it might be the case that we would find it to be worthwhile to make those regulatory changes necessary to allow rates to be very negative in the future. Uh, I'm just not sure that right now, kind of in the middle of crisis, that's the moment when we want to allow that to happen. Ryan Avon, thank you very much. Thank you. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. And finally, what do Disney, Airbnb, General Electric, the iPod and Alibaba's online shopping mall all have in common? They each got their start during a downturn. Is there something about those tough conditions that makes them ripe for disruptive ideas? Or are they the exceptions that prove the rule that a slump is the worst time to start a business? Well, certainly there is that opportunity in crisis People are thinking hard when their backs are against the wall. Henry Trix is our Schumpeter columnist. There's also the likelihood that the big incumbents, the ones that have dominated industries, um, may be weakened by a crisis and that may open up a bit of space. Labour becomes cheaper 
uh, overhead such as office space becomes cheaper. So there are a few more opportunities there which really sort of bright entrepreneurial businesses can seize upon. And it's obviously a very great story for this huge success to come from very difficult times. Tell us what the overall numbers show. Yeah, well, we did a bit of um, a bit of research going back to 1857, and it's clear that many more companies are born during good times than during times of recession. But it's really striking that since 1970, at least 80 percent of companies have been born in booms rather than busts. And is it the availability of financing you think that makes it harder for startups to to get going in a downturn? Certainly. I mean, you can see how at the moment um, banks are doing their best to husband cash. Uh, venture capital funding during the um, financial crisis, VC funding in America fell about 30%. But generally, yes, it's very difficult to pitch a new business to bankers or financiers of any sort at this stage of an economic downturn. And certainly when you have to talk to them over Zoom and try and convince them to part their money um, with you that way. And tell us a little bit about the theory behind this. I mean, the column that you write, Schumpeter, is named after an economist who precisely theorised about when waves of entrepreneurship take place. Yes, uh, Joseph Schumpeter came up with the idea of creative destruction as a sort of catalyst, if you like, of booms and busts in business cycles. Dating back to 1911, when he was a young man, he actually described entrepreneurs as part of the very logic of the capitalist system, that they basically come up with ideas that provokes a swarm of new entrepreneurs who generate a wave of prosperity and this builds into a boom that will eventually come to bust inevitably. And the theory has proved pretty rock solid, actually, and and we still very much are beholden to this idea of creative destruction and the importance of startups in driving economic expansions. Is there a sweet spot? Do you want to be established, but perhaps not too big so that you don't have lots of staff to pay? The sweet spot is the small, entrepreneurial, innovative company that has got startup funding before the crisis struck uh, and probably doesn't have many staff and doesn't have high overheads and is flexible enough to be able to sort of throw out their old business plan and think, what is the new business opportunity in this COVID era? And the assumption is that there are quite a lot of companies like that, because just in the last two years or so, there's been more than $600 billion worth of VC funding for these kind of firms worldwide. Uh, So there are companies with a good cushion of cash beneath them that providing they're flexible enough could be able to take advantage of this opportunity. And of course, creative destruction isn't just about new companies. You could see it happen within existing firms. What does this all mean for the tech giants? Well, it's interesting because when people talk about creative destruction. They think about feisty entrepreneurs. But the Schumpeterians uh, have coined a new phrase as well, which is called creative accumulation, that's much more associated with big firms. So this is the relentless investment in incremental innovation that takes place in the R&D labs of these companies. And they're not 
necessarily always going to be creating world-changing new innovations, but they're certainly doing enough to keep ahead of the competition. So these creative accumulators, they come into the crisis and what have they got? They've got huge amounts of cash on their balance sheets. So I think it's fair to say that in this crisis, it won't be those guys who fall victim to uh, creative destruction. I think it's in fact, even possible that they will be able to do some creative destruction themselves. So how optimistic does all this leave you feeling about the state of entrepreneurship in coming years? Well, there's an argument that the low-hanging fruit of innovation has all been plucked. You know, we've seen academics in the last decade or so arguing, okay, yes, there's been a lot of innovation through the internet, etc. But it's nothing like what happened in the 1920s with with automobiles and airlines and, and goodness knows what. And I have not always been convinced with that. Um, we are still seeing quite a lot of innovation going on in transport, you know, the whole ride sharing phenomenon, mobility, that sort of thing. But I think now COVID-19 has changed the landscape so profoundly with uh, home working, with uh, tele-education, with telemedicine, that I'm sure there will be entrepreneurs out there spying opportunities and really ready to make a killing out of this. Henry Trix, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read more about the way the pandemic is changing the world of business in The Economist. Subscribe today. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Rachna Sharnbogue. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>